Welcome to episode 269 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's filets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer 
and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash IFpodcast with code IFpodcast. I will put all this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 269 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. How are you today, Cynthia? I'm doing well, other than two surly teenage boys. When do they get out for school? Officially on June 2nd. But we've already had like the award ceremonies and I'm happy to report they had high academic honors, which was awesome. But they're teen boys and they, you know, they did not permit any photos to be taken of them. 
And so, you know, all the friends of mine that have daughters, you know, there are pictures of the family and their awards and my kids, no, not so much. I took pictures from far away and I just decided I was like, there are battles worth fighting and this is not one I choose to fight. But yeah, they will officially be out on June 2nd and I'm pretty excited. It's been, this is like their really, their first full year of school in two years to be physically in school the entire school year. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. The pandemic has definitely, and it's not, it's not just my kids. It's every child, every family has been impacted by the pandemic. And so for me, I'm just so grateful that they were in school for an entire year. I mean, things that you take for granted that we, you know, never imagined we would have two years of, or a solid year of being at home and being in school and then, you know, partial back to school you know, last year. So I'm just grateful they got to be in school with their peers part of the year unmasked. Then they've been doing really well, despite all the the stress and the drama of the last two years. And I'm getting flashbacks now. There's something so glorious and wonderful when you are growing up and summer vacation. It's just so exciting. (laughs) Well, it's done. And to be honest with you, as a parent, I always really, really looked forward to mid-May because all of a sudden the sports were over religious education was over. It was like the carpool nonsense that all parents go through just stops. And so they would just go to school and they would come home and it was just a lot more togetherness and they're probably getting more sleep. And my husband and I are obviously spending less time driving back and forth between multiple sports. And so it just, it kind of gives you like a prelude to what the summer is going to be like. And so for me, I'm all about, like, I'm very much the kind of mom where I let my kids sleep in, they have chores, but I like them to actually decompress. And so I'm not, I'm not super strict as long as they get their work done. I know that may be a departure from some families that are listening, but I've just come to understand like my kids do really well in school and they're good kids. And I let them do a lot of like decompression activities during the summer. I think it's, you know, when they were younger and they had to be in a structured activity because they had so much energy and they needed an outlet and, Now it's more, you know, thinking about, you know, what college does my oldest want to apply to? And he's kind of leading into like STEM curriculum. And so looking at AP classes and it's just, it's so different. It's like you really develop a very different relationship with your kids as they're getting older. And so it's also, you know, to me, picking my battles. So it's less about, you know, keeping them under my thumb and forcing them to do so many hours of reading every day and, now it's a different it's a different playing field. That's very much the way I was raised as well. My parents were were like that. Of course, I was very on top of things. So <laughs> I remember for summer reading, I would read the books a minimum of two times, sometimes more. Which looking back, I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I read The Hobbit twice after already having read it like in the past as well? It doesn't surprise me that you would be like a willing overachiever, like not not someone who's doing it for any other other reason than to thoroughly be invested and really understand and comprehend what you're reading. And so I love I love that we both share that. Although we would not have been in school at the same time together, I do love that we are both very cerebral and enjoy just enjoyed learning. I mean, what a blessing that is, right? Speaking of, Jen and I used to always talk about would we be friends in high school and would like which lunch table will we be at the same lunch table? <laughs> We decided that we might be, but probably not, probably slightly different lunch tables. Which lunch table were you at in high school? You know, it's ironic that in high school and in college, I was part of a very popular crew. However, 
in my popular crew, there was like, you know, the subcategories of popular girls. And I was part of the smart girls that got good grades and weren't promiscuous and, you know, like had boyfriends, but we were nice to people. And so, you know, to me, it was, it was at that stage, it was actually cool to be smart. Whereas like the, you know, people who were like the creme de la creme popular people didn't care about school. And so I just kind of stayed focused on like, I want to go to college and I want to do this and I want to do that. And I know I'm not going to stay in this school, but I was always nice to everyone. I was also vice president of my class and, you know, captain of back in the day, I played field hockey. So to me, it was important to just be kind and nice to people. Yeah. My kids cannot believe that I was popular. Like they're like, you're so dorky and nerdy. And I'm like, oh, but it's all in the down low. Like no one knows that unless they know me well. How about you? I would imagine you were like, you know, top in your class and super, super, super smart. There was like the honors English class. And it was basically the, you know, the really intellectual quote, smart kids, but it was kind of similar. It had like some popular people from the popular crowd in it. So it was kind of just like the the nice, smart people. That was like my main group. Yeah, I really excelled academically. So you probably would have been like at my school in the honors English group class, but you would have been in the popular, like the popular people who are in the honors class. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny because I had this like not so nice high school boyfriend, like when I look back and he used to call it the nerd herd, like he would make fun of the fact that I was in AP classes and honors classes. And I was like, who ended up doing better? You know, looking at where he is and, and like where I am. And, and let me be clear, like I'm friends with his wife. So and his, and his mom and his sister, like I have a very nice relationship with all them. But I look back that he would like tease me. And I was like, there's nothing to be ashamed of for being smart. Like smart people run the world. That's my feeling. It's good to be smart. I love it. How was, by the way, you interviewed Rob Wolf again, right? I did. He's so wonderful. Like he's just so, such an easy interview because he's just so gracious and humble. And with my cardiology background, we talked a lot about electrolytes and, you know, we did talk about overtraining because I, I know, and I, and I'm very aligned with his perspectives on like the overtraining goes along with the over restriction of food, goes along with over fasting, goes along with plateaus. And so we did touch on that, which was really important to me because I wanted him to also know, like, there are clearly people that go overboard with all of the above, but it was a really nice conversation. It was nice for someone else to talk about the value of electrolytes and not just me saying, oh, by the way, I worked for 16 years in cardiology and I got really, really good at replacing electrolytes. I got really good at replacing electrolytes and no one really wants to hear about that because it's it seemingly seems so insignificant, but yet it's so important. Like I, I was actually saying to Rob, I had surgery almost a month ago and I knew that you know, my body was going to take a hit because of this orthopedic surgery. And I was telling him, I said, I, you know, my HRV, my heart rate variability has really been in the toilet. <laughs> because Clearly, as, as well as I am sleeping, my body still perceives there's all this ongoing stress and my cortisol levels must, you know, still be dysregulated. And I said, I just kept adding more sodium and they kept coming down. And I said, it's just so amazing. Like something so simple can be so helpful. So yes, Rob was amazing. And then the other guest that I had most recently that really just, I'm still in like such awe of my conversation with Sarah Gottfried, which I, I know you interviewed her recently as well. And she's just so... We pushed it. So it's in a few weeks. Oh, sorry. Well, mine just dropped. But it, when I was listening to it, I was just, I feel so very grateful as I know you do that we have 
platforms in which we can connect with such profoundly influential individuals in the space and be able to share like all of their wisdom with the world. Yeah, I am so, so excited to interview her. It's really exciting. She's so smart. Yeah, this upcoming week for me is actually unique. I'm only going on a podcast. I don't actually have an interview, but I'm like scrambling. (laughs) Every now and then I have a little like panic moment where I'm like, how am I going to prep everything? But then I I take a moment and I breathe. I'm really excited about the lineup. The next, oh, that's the next person I'm interviewing. Mark Sisson. No way. I'm so excited. Did you like sacrifice your firstborn child? Basically. Um, <laughs> and I say that, I say that like very like lovingly, like the facetious, you know, future born child. I'm like, that's awesome. That's going to be a really, really surreal moment because I mean, it's surreal anyways with all of the people that I get to interview, but really there's like a handful of people that are the people I've been following from, you know, day one. It's basically Rob, Mark Sisson, Dave Asprey, probably those three. Yeah. And I haven't interviewed Mark. That's so cool. Did I tell you that a couple of years ago, I literally ran into him because I wasn't looking where I was walking? No way. (laughs) And he could not have been more polite. I remember I was so like, oh my God, I just ran into Mark Sisson and he was so polite. So I got connected to him through Brad Kearns, who I'm pretty good friends with, who's co-author. And so I've been talking with Brad about what direction to take the interview because you know, there's so many ways it could go, but I think I might focus more on like him, like his personal life. And like, cause he's done so many businesses and I would just love to hear all about that rather than focusing, you know, on the primal stuff as much. I think that's so exciting. I'm so excited for you. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of these people, when you've been following them for a long period of time, I mean, that's how I felt about Sarah Gottfried, you know, in addition to the other people you mentioned, So when I was talking to her, I was trying not to fangirl. Like I was really like nervous. Like I told my husband, I was like, I was sweating. I tried to be as cool as I could be. (laughs) But, you know, to actually meet some of these people that we've been following for years and, you know, valuing the message and methodology of their, their brands and their vision. And to me, it's, it's, I tell everyone all the time, like one of my greatest blessings in my business is being able to podcast because as you've said, it's the best way to network. You just don't even realize how important it is until you know you get in a position where you either meet someone in real life and you're like, oh my gosh, I mean, you really do become friends and acquaintances with so many of these people. And we're all trying to positively impact lives in a way that that leaves people better off. And to me, it's just, it's so amazing. So I love that you that was probably a year or two ago. You're like, podcasting is the best way to network. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what it is. Because it's basically conversations that aren't superficial because, you know, they're deep conversations where you're talking about the work and you're really connecting. And then you're just doing that regularly. <laughs> and it's all the amazing people. So I'm just so grateful. I'm like really in awe. Well, and for anyone who doesn't know this about you, I do know this about you. I probably spend five to 10 hours for each podcast, just organizing, listening to other podcasts, like trying to get a sense for what the person's like. Melanie is next level because she has graciously on a few times shared her notes and they are so detailed. So for anyone that's listening, you have no idea. Like when Melanie says she's preparing, she's like preparing to go do a doctoral dissertation. Like she's so well prepared. So if you don't know that about her, 
you should know that about her. So I, you know, as I say, you always, you know, encourage me to level up how I prepare and how I get ready for my own podcasts. Well, thank you so much. And I echo that back to you as well. Like, cause I feel like, you know, there are a lot of podcasts out there and there are a lot of people who don't prepare and do just, you know, show up. And I get the exact same sense from you with the, the preparation. So yeah, it's a good place to be. Absolutely. And I can tell you, like now that I've been on the other side, having had a book launch, the people that were prepared, like I really appreciated that because you get to a point where you're just doing so much press that you're exhausted. Like I remember there were weeks where I was doing 12 to 15 podcasts a week on top of other media. And you were like, where do I need to show up? And what am I talking about? Like you were just like showing up and, you know, being yourself and being enthusiastic. And I would have people that are like, yeah, I haven't really read your book. And just tell me what you want to talk about. And I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, not even a skim, like not even read the appendix or read the, you know, the table of contents, anything. And there's no judgment. It's just sometimes I was like, oh man, this is going to be harder than I thought. When people ask me basically to provide all the questions for the interview. I mean, I I still do it and I'm still grateful, but it's, I appreciate it much more, like you said, when it's really evident that they've read the book and they come with the questions and everything. Well, and it's interesting because I I interviewed Dr. Avram Blumming and Carol Tavris about their book, Estrogen Matters. And it was funny after we recorded, they both said to me, Cynthia, your assistant reached out to us and asked us to tell you what we wanted to talk about. And they were kind of taken aback. And they said, but now that we've met you, we understand that you really just wanted to make sure that you were aware of what we thought was most important. But by the same token, you did so much prep work. Like that podcast, I probably spent more time on than anyone I've done this entire year because I felt like the Women's Health Initiative, as an example, had led so many clinicians and and patients to be fearful of hormone replacement therapy. And I was like, I know I've got this platform. And so... I think in most instances, I I really endeavor to kind of think about how do I ensure that person knows I value their time, but also let them know like, I'm really like, I'm in the game and I'm like super prepped and I've read all your stuff and I've outlined and I've, you know, listened to podcasts, you know, just to get a sense, you know, I just interviewed the head researcher for HVMN and he was so delightful. He was like a Rick Johnson-esque person like so enthusiastic, so excited, was able to translate the science into layman's terminology. And that was such a joy. And I was like, wow, like I was so surprised. It was like, I instantly liked him. And I thought to myself, you know, this is what's so awesome to be in this space. And we can actually have these opportunities to take, you know, real research and make it relatable for the average person, because that's, that's really, you know, the platform that I think we're both on. Although obviously you're on a you know, a biohacking platform and I'm on a, you know, 35 and up trying to translate, you know, how to navigate our lives without too much stress and distress. Two thoughts to that one. So the way I tackle the getting the vibe of what they want to talk about while also having them know that I value their time, I just, in the intake form, all of the questions are optional. And there's just one question that says, are there any topics in particular you'd like to talk about? So rather than like asking like what questions you want me to answer, it's just like very open. Like I feel like that kind of accomplishes that goal, at least for me. I may have to borrow that. Of course, with credit given to you. <laughs> no, you don't need no credit needed. I probably took it from somebody else. 
And the second thought was I was listening as per usual <laughs> last night to a Peter Atia episode and they were talking about, it was one of the Q and A's and the co-host was saying how he always will reach out when he reads studies. If he has questions, he'll literally just email the researchers on the studies and the majority of the time they always answer and usually are really excited to talk about the studies. So I was like, I should start doing that. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is so Dr. Blumming, who I, you know, just bow at his feet, you know, his book is so amazing. And he sends me updates. Like he just did an editorial for a journal and sent me the update. And I was like, thank you so much. I can't wait to read it. And I meant it genuinely because he's helping to change the narrative and the discussions around and the fears around prescribing and taking hormones. And so I was like, he's doing amazing, amazing things. Yeah, they love to talk about that stuff. And for listeners, this is Cynthia's Everyday Wellness Podcast. That podcast dropped in February. And as you know, I'm like a big nerd. I like to look at my metrics. And so number one for the year thus far is Megan Ramos and then Rick Johnson. I'm interviewing her in a few months. Yeah, it was, I mean, like there's no comparison. Her downloads are way more than anyone else's. And then who else is in there? Dr. Brilliming is in there. So it's like, clearly these are, you know, concepts and methodologies that are really relating to people, which I think is great. Yeah. But Rick Johnson's amazing. I should look at my stats and see which ones were the the biggest. Yeah. I kind of trend it. I mean, I, I don't know if it makes me like, I just allows me to kind of see who do I want to bring back? What really resonates? What was a dodo? I think sometimes, you know, you do a great interview and it just doesn't resonate with your listeners and you're like, gosh, that was surprising. And then sometimes something that you... Or the reverse. Yeah. Co- correct. <laughs> that happened. The unicorns, you're like, where did that come from? And for me, like I have genuinely, because people will ask me, I think actually you've asked me before, like, has there ever been an episode that I, you know, didn't want to air or didn't really like? And I can genuinely say I have really loved every single interview that I've done, but I still, sometimes I do an interview and I love it, but I just don't know if the topic or the content will really resonate. And yeah, sometimes I'm really surprised that they freak out <laughs> and like love it. Yeah. I've had, I've only had three in, you know, almost four years of podcasting that I had to toss in the toilet, which is always disappointing. But I was like, sometimes you just don't get a good interview. You could have someone that's super smart and they're just not easy to interview or they go off on a tangent that is so not aligned with your own methodology that you're like, I can't release this because it would be a problem. But yeah, I think that's how you just navigate knowing what your audience really wants to hear and resonate with. Definitely. Well, before we jump in, I have one really quick baby teaser, and this is going to be such a vague teaser, but for listeners, I am so excited because in creating supplements now, there are a few supplements that I really want to create, but I don't know if I can, or it might be tricky or things with like FDA regulations and such. So this is just a baby teaser that I found out yesterday or the day before that one of the main supplements I want to make that I thought we couldn't, we probably are going to be able to because we might have an FDA approved version. So get really excited. Oh, I can't wait to hear more. So for listeners, if you'd like to know what that is, definitely get on my supplement email list because that's where I will be announcing the news. Also, I keep getting questions literally every day about when am I going to be releasing my magnesium supplement. So the email list for all the information is avalonx.us slash email list. 
shall we jump into everything for today? Let's jump in. So to start things off, we have a question from Alexa, and the subject is IF foods. And Alexa says, hello, ladies. I'm on my second week of IF clean, and I'm loving it. I tried IF last year, but was not doing it correctly as I was still putting creamer in my coffee. I recently found your podcast, and I'm hooked. My question is regarding the type of foods I'm consuming after I break my fast, which I've decided to begin with the 16-8. I find that sometimes I get hungry early between 9.30 to 10 a.m., then it goes away. I notice once I get past noon, sometimes I can push through to about 1 to 1.30 p.m., usually because I'm busy working, but I seem to gravitate towards a heavy lunch, for example, a tuna melt, bag of chips and water, or sometimes I'll have Mexican tacos that are super delicious, typically carne asada or other type of meat. I am just wondering if I should be careful about breaking my fast with such heavy food. Also, sometimes I don't get too hungry for dinner, so I'll have a light dinner. Do you have suggestions on how to eat correctly when IFing? I forgot to mention that I also work out three to four times a week. Thank you and sorry for all the rambling. Well, Alexa, I think first and foremost, just the fact that you're asking if you need to break your fast with a lighter meal demonstrates to me that you're already thinking that might be a problem. And so I typically recommend that you break your fast, like maybe start with some bone broth as a, you know, a light alternative or a light salad, and then perhaps have a less complicated meal. Like maybe you're having some chicken or some steak, or, you know, you're going to have a bison burger, or you're having a piece of fish with some vegetables, like non-starchy vegetables, because it could very well be that, you know, between the mayonnaise and the cheese and, you know, I don't know if the if you're making the Mexican tacos or you're buying them out, you could be exposed to seed oils. It might just be overwhelming your digestive processes. So that's my first thought is break your fast with something lighter and less, you know, kind of fat dense. That might be part of it. The other thing is depending on where you are in your cycle. So I don't know if you're still menstruating. I am an advocate of women you know, you can get away with intermittent fasting for usually the first three weeks of your cycle. But if you're within a week of getting your menstrual cycle or bleed week, then I typically recommend you back off. And the fact that you are feeling like you're having such a heavy meal and then you're not really hungry for your second meal makes me concerned that you may not be hitting your protein macros. And so for anyone who is new to listening to me on the podcast, I am all about protein, protein, protein. We really need it for so many reasons. One of them is satiety. Another one is to have adequate muscle protein synthesis. You know, hitting those protein macros is going to be really important. So I would probably recommend you start with a lighter meal when you break your fast so that it'll allow you to get in enough protein between your two regular meals during your fasting window. So that reminded me of the interview that I did have in the interim since we talked, which was Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who is as well all about the protein and really, really knows the science of it and why it's so important. So I I really can't wait to air that. I agree with everything that you said. I like what you said about the fact that she's asking means that she might be intuitively onto something. And I do think that this is something pretty intuitive because we are really, really unique everybody individually. So some people can handle having a big bolus of food and be fine. And some people are delicate butterflies and and need to really take a more measured approach, like Cynthia said, with maybe breaking with bone broth or something um, more gentle. I found for me, it's, I break my fast (laughs) 
I post about this all the time on Instagram so people know with like cucumbers <laughs> and wine, but then I move into a, a really heavy meal actually, but I do kind of slowly ease into it. I will say if you are eating heavier and, and there's actually, uh, I don't know if we need to like define what heavy means because on the one hand, you could have a, a meal like I eat where it's a huge amount of protein, which would seem like a quote heavy meal, but it's not necessarily heavy in the sense that it's a lot of mixed macros and, you know, fat and processed foods and that type of heavy. So I think heavy can mean different things. Mine's just heavy in like a mechanical sense. And that protein is, you know, requires a lot of energy to break down. It it does have, there's a reason it has the highest thermogenic effect of any food. You quote burn about 30% of the calories and protein just by breaking it down because <laughs> it does require a lot of digestion and energy to do that. All that to say, if you do want to eat quote heavier meals and find that you're not digesting it well, you might want to consider HCL supplementation and or digestive enzymes. That might be something that can really help. And I've always been really fascinated in the ordering of it because the natural digestion process would happen in a certain order. So basically we release stomach acid first, HCL, and then later as the food moves into the intestines, that's where enzymes process that. So I've always been a little bit haunted about does there need to be a certain order to it. I've asked a lot of guests this and I get different answers, but the way I do things is I I use HCL first in my meal and then I add digestive enzymes afterwards. So that might be something to consider. I don't necessarily think there's like a correct way, but we are really individual and it's good to be intuitive. Well, and this is just my little clinician caveat that in the past two years, I have not done one GI map, maybe one or two out of hundreds of women that hasn't had H. pylori. So I tend to be a little more conservative with recommending betaine or HCL Because if someone has an active or unknown H. pylori infection, that can actually exacerbate symptoms. So I I would say that, you know, under normal circumstances, I think digestive supports are great. But I think of like in the hierarchy, like digestive enzymes are pretty benign, but I tend to be a little bit more conservative about HCL just in case someone has H. pylori, which if you're not familiar with that is, it's an opportunistic organism that sometimes in the setting of low hydrochloric acid can flourish. And so I'm just seeing so much of it now on GI maps, which is a DNA-based stool test, that I'm tending to be really conservative with HCL until I have testing. So I agree with everything that you're saying, however, that you know how we define a heavy meal might be different to each one of us, but I define a heavy meal as something that's going to be harder on our body to digest. You know, if you're not making the tuna melt, you don't know what the ingredients are. If you're not making those Mexican tacos, you don't know what seed oils are being used. And so that could be contributing to why it's feeling like you're having a little bit of a digestive backup or just feeling very full. You know, the other thing is if you're sleepy after a meal, that could be a sign that not only is it too large of a meal, but you might have eaten enough carbohydrate that you're getting some degree of blood sugar dysregulation. So if that persists, you may want to check your blood sugar. I think that's certainly really reasonable. Glucometers are very inexpensive, but your blood sugar should come back to baseline within two hours of eating, ideally. Hi, friends. One of my favorite foods for gut health, skin, cravings, energy, and immunity is definitely bone broth. 
I and so many of my listeners love bone broth, but it can also be intimidating because it can be hard to find a bone broth that is all natural, organic, free of preservatives, and especially no salt added. Of course, you can always make your own, which I love, but that can be a little bit of a cumbersome process. That's why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty and the Broth. They make it so, so easy to bring bone broth into your life because they ship it in concentrated form in shelf-stable packets. It's easy to store, doesn't take up space, you don't have to worry about keeping it frozen, and then when you reconstitute it with water, you can customize it exactly to your tastes. It is incredible. Beauty and the Broth makes delicious bone broth from vegetarian-fed, free-range chicken bones and USDA organic, grass-fed, ranch-raised beef. The meat and bones come from certified humane and USDA organic farms, no antibiotics, no hormones. They also use organic vegetables and powerful herbs that are so delicious, all without any added salt or sodium. A lot of the broths on the market are also kettle or pressure cooked, which breaks down ingredient nutrients and reduces their integrity and potency. Beauty in the Broth doesn't do that. They let all of those amazing ingredients slowly simmer for up to 24 hours to create a broth that is super high in naturally occurring collagen and nutrients. Your gut will thank you, I promise. We often get questions about the best way to open your eating window. This is an incredible way to do that. Especially when you're in the fasted state, your gut is super ready to absorb these nutrients and bone broth contains the specific nutrients needed to heal your gut, help with leaky gut, support digestion, and so much more. And when it's cold in the winter months, what tastes better than a warm cup of bone broth? You will notice it in your nails, in your gut health, in your hair, in your improved recovery, increased energy. And did I mention it's so convenient and so easy to use? They've also got a vegan mushroom broth, which is super rich in umami and delicious for all of you vegans out there. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash broth and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 15% off site-wide. That's melanieavalon.com slash broth with the coupon code melanieavalon for 15% off site-wide. Friends, if you've been wanting to get on the bone broth train, this is the way to do it. Definitely check it out. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Just a thought. Question about the H. pylori. So it flourishes in low HCL environment or high HCL environment? No, low. Because, it, you know, it's it's like anything. We start producing less hydrochloric acid as we get older. So it's much more common to see HCL flourishing because it's a first line of defense. You know, hydrochloric acid is designed to kill things. And if you have inadequate levels and certainly it gets depleted, you, you can get HCL depletion just from not having enough precursors like certain types of zinc. And so I remind people that until proven otherwise, until I know someone definitely doesn't have H. pylori, and this is just in my own like clinical environment, I sometimes will hold off on doing HCL, but there's certainly, you know, other things you can do to help support digestion. As you mentioned, digestive enzymes are great. I'm just seeing so much H. pylori now. Like I think it has a lot to do with the impact of stress on the gut microbiome. And that's been my working hypothesis that the uh, doctors at, at the GI MAP lab agree with because we're just seeing, I've never seen so much H. pylori, never. So wouldn't taking HCL benefit that then? You have to kill the infection. So you remove what doesn't belong. And think about it this way. If you are getting H. pylori and it's, you know, you're taking a stool sample, it's gotten from the stomach, through the entire digestive system, small intestine, large intestine, into the rectum and expelled. And so whatever amount you're seeing quantified on DNA-based technology is actually higher. So we eradicate first, and then we go to supplementation with HCL. 
but it's usually created in a low hydrochloric acid environment. And that's oftentimes related to age-related changes or people aren't people don't have the cofactors to be able to create enough hydrochloric acid. And so that's kind of where I go from. And that's, that's been, that's what I was taught. And it's definitely been my clinical experience to see that, that you want to make sure that you're, you're not addressing HCL issues if someone has H. pylori. Okay. I'm still not following. If the problem with H. pylori is low HCL or because of the ulcers. Well, there's, there's many different types of H. pylori. And so some are prone to, Precancerous lead-ins, they can lead to certain types of duodenal ulcers, et cetera. And when you do the testing, especially the type of testing I mentioned, it'll help you differentiate if they have any of the pathologic cofactors that go along with it. But here's the thing. When HCL is at a proper level, if HCL is at a proper level, you should not have an issue with H. pylori. It's in the setting of a low hydro, you know, hypochloridria. In that setting, that is when you can make this opportunistic opportunity for things not to get killed off. That could be a parasite that you ingest. And yes, as horrifying as it is to think, we ingest a lot of things and we are dependent on this first line of defense in our stomach to have enough hydrochloric acid to kill things off. But what I see in most women that I work with is that they do not have optimal levels of hydrochloric acid and therefore it bypasses this first line of defense. We should not have H. pylori in our stomach, not, certainly not at detectable levels. And so with DNA-based stool testing, you are seeing signs of a mechanism that could be also a reflection of the impact of stress on the gut microbiome because we know that impacts immune function as well. So the reason not to take the HCL is so that you can test and see if you have H. pylori. Well, that's one of the reasons, but that's also like sometimes people will start H. pylori and they all of a sudden get reflux or they're burping a lot or they're nauseous or they're bloated. And so they start HCL or they start... It can exacerbate their symptoms from H. pylori. Sometimes it can be very subtle. They might just have bloating and they just kind of assume bloating is normal. Like, oh, I had dairy and I'm bloated or, oh, I had some gluten and that's why I'm bloated, but it could in fact be related to an imbalance in the gut microbiome. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but certainly H. pylori is an opportunistic infection and more often than not, it is attributable to a low HCL environment in the stomach. Okay. I'm I'm just not understanding if it's attributable to low HCL, what is the reason for not taking HCL? Because you have to kill the infection. You remove what does not belong before you start adding digestive support like that. This is a clinical thing. Like this is, you know, a best practice kind of thing. And this is something that, you know, I learned in school and has been, you know, the case. I don't start hydrochloric acid unless I'm sure someone has cleared H. pylori. And you think about digestion from a north to south process, what's in the stomach You have to address what's there before you address candida or a parasite or dysbiosis or any other, you know, worms, which occasionally come up on diagnostic testing. You start north to south. And so you have to eradicate what does not belong in the stomach before you start addressing things that are going on lower in the digestive system. Okay. So I just really want to understand what you're saying. So to re-say what you just said, you need to address these infections before you work on digestive support as a solution? Well, you, wanna, you want to, before you prescribe or recommend HCL, 
you want to make sure they don't have H. pylori. I mean, that's that's where it stems from. If they don't have H. pylori, you could absolutely start hydrochloric acid. And more often than not, people will see improvement in you know protein and amino acid breakdown. And for many people, that can be a simple fix to why they you know struggle with a protein bolus. But I always like to be thinking as a clinician and that's one of those things I always say, like more often than not, hydrochloric acid is pretty benign. However, here's my caveat in my clinical experience. You want to be careful about dosing it if you haven't already ruled out H. pylori. And there's just so much of it. Like I have seen more in the past two years than I've seen in the last 10 years. That's how much I've seen. Is that an easy test? Like can people ask their practitioner for that test or would it be a GI doc that normally does that? I know you're not a GI I would say it's someone that's functionally or integrative medicine trained. So for me, I think it's before I started working with the Dutch, I think the GI map is one of the best tests I've worked with because it's a starting point. It's been my experience that most primary care providers, internists, and most traditionally trained gastroenterologists are not using it. And it's because it's not part of that kind of allopathic medical model. And so it doesn't mean that it's not valuable, but for a lot of people, they do pay out of pocket. And so... That can be something that's limiting. I've had people come to me who've been to their traditional, they've done the GI workup, they've done, you know, they've had breath testing for H. pylori. And I tell everyone the gold standard is stool. The best way to rule out H. pylori, as disgusting as it is, because think about it, H. pylori is in the stomach. And if it gets, if you get a positive test with stool, that means it made it all the way. So it's not like a, it won't find the dead DNA? Well, I mean, you're shedding it. So it's really, you know, going in with testing. I mean, I can send you some of the information so you can learn more about the testing, but it's it's been one of those things that that amount of shedding, if you get it all the way into your stool is, is pretty significant. So I always say to people like, yeah, the number's not all that high. However, <laughs> you know, we weren't going into your stomach and taking the the sample there and breath testing is not as reliable. That's if anyone's listening and they've had that kind of testing, I oftentimes will say gold standard is stool and it's not impossible to get it done. You just have to, you know, advocate. And for a lot of people that are experiencing reflux and heartburn and burping and belching, and it's just, you know, they're put on proton pump inhibitors, which in and of themselves have a lot of long-term health complications. And I say this with respect because we put everyone in the hospital on protonics, which is a PPI. But the more I learned about how important stomach acid is, like we're actually making it worse by putting people on these drugs long-term. I cannot agree more. I've had that stool test and I've had, do they test for H. pylori when they do endoscopies? They can do, yeah, they can do little samples and send them off. And obviously that, I mean, that's that's up close and personal, but you know, it, it's, so think about it in the hierarchy of like costs, it's much more cost-effective to do a stool test versus an in you know an invasive procedure but sometimes you need the invasive procedure and if they're in there they can do a biopsy and we're testing yeah awesome all right shall we go on to our next question sure this is from leah subject is coffee differences hello i wrote before with a question but now i have another one i'm listening to an episode where a listener asked about teeth whitening strips and it made me think of the time jen said she had black coffee from mcdonald's and it made her shaky Now I stopped getting flavored roasts and only finished off my current stock of flavored roasts during my window once I started fasting. My question is that besides the flavored roasts, by flavored things like hazelnut, toffee, winter mint, etc., how would we who are still relatively new to IF know if a black coffee affects our fast in a bad way like McDonald's did for gin? 
I buy whole bean coffee from Gobina, a not-for-profit that sends its proceeds to help orphans around the world and partners with adoptive families to help them fundraise and have been getting the Yuragashif light roast instead of the flavor roasted beans. I grind them at home and send about half of a five-pound bag overseas to my fiance, who has also started fasting with me. He already liked his coffee black, so no trouble there. What could have made that McDonald's coffee different? How could we find out? I want to fast clean, but the sheer relief I could keep coffee, even if I had to stop putting cacao in it during the fast was so nice. You gals will never run out of things to talk about on the podcast. We'll always have questions. Leah. All right, Leah. Well, thank you so much for your question. And I do remember when we were talking about this. And so I looked up the McDonald's coffee and it is just coffee. (laughs) There's no additives. They do say that it, I thought this was interesting. They say there's the potential of a dairy allergy. And I'm guessing that's just, I'm guessing that's cross-contamination from, they're assuming with the coffee machine that it's possible that dairy could get into it. That's what I'm guessing rather than from the source. I don't know. So it could be a, a few things. One, there's the whole movement of mold-free coffee, like the Bulletproof Coffee with Dave Asprey. Do you drink coffee, Cynthia? I do not drink coffee. However, in our house, we have Purity and we have a company called Square Feet, and the latter of which is a very small like home-based business, but the man who runs it is very OCD about mycotoxins and tests multiple different ways. So that's typically what we have in our house and what I generally recommend. Oh, nice. We will put links in the show notes to these coffees. The the show notes, by the way, will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 269. My coffee intake, I literally have like a sip every morning. It's very, very small, but I drink Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee because of the mycotoxins and mold issue. And I've also used Ben Greenfield's Keon Coffee in the past, but people who react to these mycotoxins and mold, I think it can really be a thing. And I think it could create that shaky effect in people. So it could be that. I mean, I, I don't know what else it would be. Do you have thoughts about it, Cynthia? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the concern about mycotoxins is a real, is a real issue, but I, I just can't imagine that McDonald's quality would be, I mean, who knows what else it's cross-contaminated with. And so could it have been blood sugar dysregulation? Could it have been a spike in cortisol? Because we know in some people, you know, coffee or whether it's the polyphenols, I mean, we know that you can get some appreciable you know, cortisol dysregulation, which is going to raise your blood sugar, which is going to raise insulin. And so, you know, the shakiness could have been from a, a few different things, but certainly, you know, quality is important. And and so it sounds like Leah's, you know, makes a very conscientious effort to select a product that, you know, sounds like it's probably, you know, high quality, but I always think mycotoxins until proven otherwise, because coffee beans are are readily known to be a mold sensitive or mold prone product, just like peanuts and legumes and and things like that. So that that's probably where I would lean first. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Okay. So we have a question from Trina and the subject is keto and OMAD one meal a day question. Trina says, I've been using OMAD for just under a week and have been doing okay. No weight loss yet, but I do have hunger pains periodically and some last for over an hour. I'm also doing keto while I'm having my one meal a day. Is this too much to do, OMAD and keto at once? And could this be causing me to feel hungry while I'm fasting? 
or should I stay the course? Or if I'm not going to lose weight because I'm being too restrictive by using keto, should I add bread, pasta, et cetera, here and there? I do think I'd feel fuller at the moment, but I don't want the grains slash carbs to spike my insulin. I've been keto since April 1st, pretty strict, and only up and down a few pounds weight loss, but overall still the same weight. I did IF for 18.6 for a couple of weeks, no weight loss. Now trying OMAD has been about a week. I may be adrenal fatigued. Could this be my body healing instead of losing weight? And if so, when, oh, when can I hope to see any weight loss? I really do like the OMAD, but I'm getting frustrated. By the way, I eat in the middle of the day currently, but maybe shifting to an evening OMAD might help. I work full time, very busy, and was worried I'd be dragging if I didn't eat in the middle of the day. But eating with my family would be more enjoyable for all of us. And then she has a second question, but I thought we could um, answer this first. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here. Unfortunately, the toxic diet culture has convinced women in particular that weight loss is the only metric to demonstrate if a new strategy is effective. And so, you know, if you look at the research, typically because women have different body fat to muscle mass composition, as well as hormonal fluctuations. I don't know how old Trina is. I I don't know if she's insulin resistant, but depending on where you are life stage wise, it may take six to eight weeks to start seeing significant. And when when I mean significant, really one to two pounds a week, you know, over six to eight weeks. Yes, I would expect to see some weight reduction I think it's important to focus on non-scale victories, meaning, you know, are you getting changes in body composition? Are your clothes fitting a little more loosely? Are you having more energy, more mental clarity, et cetera? So I, I think there's a couple things to focus on. One meal a day for many people may not allow you to get enough macros in. And I know this is something that Melanie and I have talked a lot about outside of the podcast. And so there's a lot of layers to this this question. Obviously, the first one being be patient. I know it's easier said than done, of course. But I I think that it's important to understand that you may not see a scale shift immediately and to just trust the course. The other thing is, can you get enough protein in in one meal a day? That's always my concern with women. If you really just have one meal, are you getting enough food in? And so, you know, you also mentioned being adrenal fatigued. And so, There's a lot to look at. You know, when women are fasting, I think it's really critically important that you focus on what's your sleep quality like. And you have that's foundational. If you can't sleep through the night or your sleep quality is eroded, you need to back off on fasting. Number two, what's your stress management like? And that's not three minutes of meditation once a week. Anti inflammatory nutrition. I think keto can be helpful. However, maybe you need to, you know, really be thinking thoughtfully about what's working for your body protein, non-starchy vegetables, right types of fats. And then the last thing that I think about is, I, I don't know if you're exercising, it sounds like you've got a very busy schedule, but we know that insulin resistance starts in our muscles as an example. So some type of physical activity is going to be very important to help with insulin sensitivity. But it's hard for me to completely you know, provide some perspective about the adrenal fatigue. If you're in perimenopause or menopause, more than likely your adrenals need some love and support. And that's why the stress management and the sleep are so important and the right types of exercise and food. Melanie, what would you add to that? That was very comprehensive. (laughs) That was wonderful. The only thing I would add would be, so going back to the keto, 
I think there's often, there's this binary dichotomy that people have viewing keto where they're either keto or they're eating bread and pasta, where I think it's much more nuanced than that. And adding carbs to keto doesn't have to be bread and pasta. (laughs) It doesn't have to be this huge whack of high GI, potentially inflammatory carb source. You can add in some carbs while still existing more within a quote keto paradigm. Cause a lot of people on keto do include, you know, berries, for example, like small amounts of berries, even upping the vegetable intake could potentially up the carb count. So like, I would not go to bread and pasta, like to make yourself less stressed or less restrictive. I don't think for most people that that would be the solution. Some other thoughts about existing within the the keto paradigm and frame. Cynthia mentioned this, but the role of protein is so important. So I don't know if you're doing like a super high fat version of keto or not, but adding that more protein and maybe if you are doing super high fat, titrating down the fat, that might be a way to A, feel more full because the protein is going to do that, be more nourished via the protein and potentially encourage weight loss by titrating down the fat. Also switching out the types of fats might be helpful. So depending on what type of fat you're having in your keto diet, MCT oil, for example, is a very thermogenic fat. And so if you are adding oils or butter, things like that, switching some of that out for MCT oil might have a beneficial effect on your weight loss. There is the option because you're worried about keto plus fasting being too stressful. There is the option of trying fasting with not keto. That is an option. (laughs) So trying a higher carb, lower fat approach, like for me personally, that works really well. Again, we're all individual. I know when did she start this? Only a couple weeks. Okay. So I I wouldn't jump to this right now because like Cynthia said, it's only been a couple weeks and I would stick it out a little bit longer. That said, if you make it months and you're still not happy and you're not seeing weight loss, some people do find that they do better on a higher carb, lower fat approach with the fasting. So that is definitely something to try. Well, and it's interesting. When I talked to Sarah Gottfried a few weeks ago, one of the things she was talking about is women have to use keto differently than men. And it's been my experience that men seem to be able to eat copious amounts of both plant-based and animal-based fats. And we really have to reflect on the fact that you know, carbs and protein are four calories per gram, even though I don't encourage people to count calories. Maybe, let me just put that in there. Whereas fats are nine calories per gram. So you don't need as much fat as you think you do. For as an example, if you're having a piece of salmon steak or a ribeye, guess what? The fats are already in there. You don't need to add more fats. And and this is where I see a lot of women get into trouble because like dairy, like cheese, cheese is delicious and nuts are delicious. And so people are like, yay, I'm doing keto. This is awesome. And before they know it, they've eaten four portions of cheese and three of nuts and they've blown, you know, any caloric deficit that might have even been created by intermittent fasting. So just something to think about that plant-based fats for a lot of people, including myself, I, I tend to do better with those. So less heavy fats, but really leaning into, you know, where are you life stage wise? Are you insulin resistant? And maybe, you know, be really mindful about your portion sizes of fats. 
Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash IF podcast and use the coupon code IF podcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash IF podcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Three thoughts to that. I'm glad you mentioned Sarah Gottfried because I was going to bring her up in my answer because I was going to say that her and you and Dr. Anna Kabaka, all of you guys are really wonderful in talking about the nuances of keto for women specifically and how that might need to be adapted for women. So I think that's really valuable. So Cynthia's book, Dr. Gottfried's book. So Cynthia's book, Intermittent Fast and Transformation, Dr. Gottfried's, what is Dr. Gottfried's most recent book? Women, Food, and Hormones. Wait, straight to the point. Yeah, Women, Food, and Hormones. So, I mean, if that title <laughs> doesn't just say it, Dr. Anna, what's Dr. Anna Quebec's most recent book? 
menu pause. So it's like M-U-N-U pause. I actually haven't read. I think that's her only book I haven't read. It's beautiful. I mean, the photos and the recipes and, you know, she really did a nice, like very thoughtful, very, very thoughtful job. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. I mean, it's, it's so, the photography is so pretty. Like you just, you know, we think about, we eat with our eyes. And so I told her, I was like, oh my gosh, the book is so beautiful. If you do nothing else, it's like artwork just to look at. Going to have to check it out. That's amazing. Well, we'll put links to all of those books in the show notes. The other thought I had was, again, listening to Peter Atia last night, one of the episodes I was listening to was he was talking about people not losing weight on keto. And he said the first thing, if that's the case, is he suggests titrating down the fat, which is just to echo what we both just said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The third thing is, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think about this a lot. I think because we do live in such a, especially with the keto movement and this idea that it has to be super high fat, we just have this feeling that with all of our food, we need to like cook it in fat and add all these oils and you don't have to. <laughs> like, like food, um, especially like you're talking about salmon, salmon has a lot of fat in it. So like a not lean chicken breast, like a chicken thighs or chicken breast with skin, like that has fat in it. Steak has fat in it. So you don't necessarily have to add a ton of fat. I know there are people like, is it Dr. Gundry who says he pours olive oil by like the the liter? I think about it. He's a dude. I always say like, that's the one thing we like bioindividuality rules, but I don't see a lot of women that can eat copious amounts of fat. And so that's usually where we, like the worst thing is when someone says, oh my God, I did keto and it was great until I gained 10 pounds. And it's almost always because they didn't realize how calorically dense fats are. And, and I always say like, if a little bit is good, too much is not good. Like I, I will fully disclose that my favorite healthy fat, I love macadamia nuts. I have to portion out a quarter cup because they're so easy to overeat. Like I literally take the bag out, put a, like take my measuring cup out. I don't measure my food otherwise. Take my measuring cup out, put it in a bowl, put the bag away. And I'm like, I'm done. Cause it's like kryptonite. It's very easy to overeat fats. Nuts are a a gateway food for me. Like I just, I can't, like I will just, I've said this on the show a lot. I don't know if I've said this to you, but one of the biggest epiphanies I had with all of this was people will say that like on keto, for example, that you can have unlimited fats because they don't raise insulin. But the reason they don't really raise insulin is because they don't really need insulin to get stored. So <laughs> the ironic thing is the same concept of, you know, fats not releasing insulin and the conclusion you could draw could be one of two things that are complete opposites. The conclusion that most people draw is, well, no insulin, so it's not going to get stored. I can have all the fat I want, but really no insulin because it's so easily stored. So just something to to ponder. That's and it's interesting. Benazadi always says you want to burn endogenous fat before you consume exogenous fat, which means you want to bore you want to burn and all of us have plenty of fat just to burn off. We want to burn the fat in our bodies as opposed to ingesting lots of fat. So just to kind of think about when we're thinking about evolved keto, meaning as Melanie just said, people say, oh, I have this, I have no blood sugar spikes on my CGM. <laughs> and it's like understanding it's because it's, you make it very easy for that extra energy just to get stored as fat. And so we want to burn the fat inside before we're eating copious amounts 
of exogenous or external sources of fats, as delicious as they are. I'll put a link in the show notes to that Peter Atia episode because it was his AMA number 22. I love his AMAs. Me too. The title is Losing Fat and Gaining Fat. And it was all about this, what, all about the concept of fat flux and how does fat actually go in and out of cells and how does keto affect that? So be very helpful for people. So Trina had one last quick question. She said, also, do we count our fasting from beginning of eating window to the next beginning of the eating window, or do we count it from where we end our eating? I'm getting confused on the whole 22-2 or 23-1 and where the hours are counted from. Thanks for all you do, and I appreciate your time. I always count it from when you stopped eating. Yes. And it's interesting because I'm running a fasting group right now, and there were like two or three women that were struggling because they were thinking about it too much. And I just said, whenever you stop eating is when your fasting window starts. And that's the easiest way to think about it. Like, don't overthink it. People get really caught up because when you end your meal, you're fasting, but you're not in the fasted state. <laughs> so it it can be confusing if, like Cynthia said, if you're overthinking it, but don't overthink it. You are fasting and that's what you're counting. So fasting is when you're not eating. Yeah. And I always, I tell people like it really takes about 12 hours for your body to kind of get to a point where it's burned off or working through, you know, that last meal. So it's important to not stress yourself out because I tell everyone, I'm like, we're so hard on ourselves. We endeavor to, you know, integrate these new strategies to make ourselves healthier and then next thing I know, people are down a rabbit hole stressing. And I'm like, listen, no stress. There's no stress. When you stop eating is the beginning of your fasting window until you eat again. Here's a question for you that we've often discussed on this show. And I'm always curious what people's thoughts are. Would you rather, if you're doing like a, a time approach where it's like a 16-8 or something like that, would you rather count the fasting hours or the eating hours? And I can clarify more if you need me to clarify. So like Jen, for example, likes to have a, like a four or five hour eating window. Whereas I like to have a minimum fasting hours. Like I like to count the fasting hours. I count the fasting hours. I really lean into, you know, how I feel in terms of, cause I have, I have a wider eating window. That's the only way I can get in the amount of protein that I need every day. So for me, I really reflect on what my minimum fasting hours should be. And that's usually what I work from. Same. It's exactly what I do. Yeah. I mean, I kind of check in with myself. I'm like, oh, when did I stop eating last night? Like last night I went out to dinner with my 16-year-old. So I ate a little later than I normally do, which is okay. But yeah, I usually focus on, okay, how do I need to adjust my fasting windows to make sure I'm at least hitting that minimum for me? Same. What I don't like is I... I don't like the thought of having to close my eating window at a certain time. Like once I start eating, like now I have this amount of time to eat that I find that very stressful. When do you open up your feeding window? Because I know you, you you stay up a little later than I do. Like nine. That's hilarious. So for listeners, I know you know that Melanie stays up a little later and I go to bed a whole lot earlier. But I was thinking one day, I was like, I wonder what time she starts eating because I know what time I start eating and they might be like 12 hours apart. <laughs> it's very possible. The only time I eat earlier is if I'm getting dinner out. I've been doing it for so long too. Hey, and that's that's what we're... I mean, you know, this is really like leaning into what works for you and your body. Like if I ate at nine o'clock at night, my sleep would be a disaster. 
<laughs> but I also go to bed a lot earlier. So I think last night I was up late. Like my aura was like, you stayed up till 10, 15. Oh, I would be so proud of myself if I went to bed at 10, 15. I would be so proud of myself if I got up when you get up too. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. My aura was squawking at me last night. Like it wants me in bed between 8.30 and 9.30. And I'm like, oh, sometimes I just don't want to go to bed that early. And then it squawks at me because my sleep latency is two to three minutes because I take progesterone, which is sedating and helps me fall asleep. So I just kind of say, I'm not going to worry about the sleep latency. I know why I fall asleep quickly. Yeah. I think I've said this before, but I, I've like hit up ceiling on my aura ring. Like I, I don't think I can get better than a certain score that I've received. I don't think I can get higher than like 90 because because of how late I go to bed. Even if like everything else is great, it considers that a, a problem, even though it tells me to go to bed late. <laughs> so it's ironic. But well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I, j- I want to just keep answering questions, but well, I guess we'll have to wait till next week. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you would like to submit your own questions for the show, directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and submit questions there. And I will say, Cynthia, we've been getting, because you weren't here before you were here. There's definitely been an influx in questions and Cynthia has come on board and it's really exciting. I think people are really excited to get your perspective on things. So keep the questions coming. And the show notes, again, will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 269. And you can follow us on Instagram. I am Melanie Avalon. Okay, wait, let me try. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. Yes, just to make it complicated. Yes. I think that's all the things. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, I'm I'm loving all the questions. In fact, as Melanie stated, we have an influx of questions and we're just trying to diligently hit a couple every episode. So keep them coming. And I've been encouraging people that have been asking questions in my DMs across social media to email them to us so we can answer them on air. Yeah, definitely. Because people will DM me as well. But if you want it on the show the email is where it needs to be. That's how it goes through the system to potentially get into the lineup. So, all right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Thanks to you as well. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.